The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome everybody, this is Squawkbox. These are your headlines. Chinese factory activity contracts for a second straight month as strict COVID measures and slowing global demand weigh on the world's second largest economy. Oil prices rise as OPEC Plus producers reportedly prepare deeper supply cuts and the EU ban on most Russian crude imports looms. Well, the Nasdaq closed lower and the S&P was flat, um, although ostensibly lower, only a decimal for the third straight day as consumer confidence dips whilst attention turns to a key speech from the Fed Chair Jerome Powell later today. And HSBC agrees to sell its Canadian business in a $10 billion deal as the lender scales back its global network to focus on the Chinese market. Yeah, good. All right. Yeah, I Not survived. too bad. I survived good. my time at Goldman's. Yeah, Very no, it looked good. Terrific guest. Do you know what Very was interesting? interesting. Mm. Uh, one little thing from behind the scenes. Yeah. I, the, you know that you and I have discussed the appetite for sustainability when actually there's security concerns. Mm. And actually, mm. a lot of people just trying to greenwash their way through it. Mm. Well, Goldman's put on an event yesterday, which was about money. It was about the money for the transition. And they had massive attendances. They almost couldn't fit people in. And I think that's very interesting about the money men and women still looking for a home for green-related funding for issues. Yeah, we've got a private equity guest coming up later on in the programme, which will be very interesting because um, the issue is where is the money going to come from and who is going to pay? Is it still available in an era where money is priced properly? Uh, Absolutely. But this is a business that was set up in 2007. Right. Sustain, sustainable uh, development capital. Before you were in capital. Sweden. Uh, absolutely. For the so, COP15. So, so the vision was 2007. Uh, and it's now that we're talking about Goldman Sachs being able to pack a room full of CEOs yeah. and money types who want to now get into the business of financing. It just shows you how slowly the cogs turn well, at times on some topics. See, I'm turning on his head. I would say despite everything that those money men and women still want to be there having a look at what's going on there. And there is capital that still needs to be deployed. Because let us not forget, a lot of um, asset managers, pensions and others raise money with the premise of investing it in mm. some form of ESG type uh, product or specifically here sustainable product as well Mm. and haven't necessarily used that finance yet and will potentially lose it if they don't do something with it within a mandated period as well so Mm. i would suggest that despite the fact that money is more expensive now some Mm. of those people who've been around a while are still looking to put in more money into these which is good because you know the line is the same as what we've had from the iea Mm. they still need to find at least half a trillion dollars to, to put into this. Uh, we're going to come back to this. Let, let's get yeah. the show back on track and pick up on that headline story and we'll uh, talk sustainable development a little bit later on in the programme. Um, factory activity in China contracting more than expected in November. The country's official manufacturing PMI falling for the second straight month. The figure came in at 48, which is below the 50 mark that separates growth from contraction. It comes in the wake of fresh COVID restrictions in major industrial cities 
as authorities battle a new wave of cases. Um, let's get out to Sam. Uh, Sam, so we've got a hard number on the industrial side from China here, but maybe you can also help us understand where are we on the latest on COVID zero and the lockdown. Good morning to you, Jeff and Steve. Well, I mean, no surprise on those headline numbers when it came to factory activity and services activity, uh, given that, of course, we did have those COVID restrictions continuing to weigh on the economy. So that was no good for things like production and new orders. It wasn't good either for the employment gauge, which we've been watching very closely. That also contracted. And those delivery times as well, that's very important to highlight because it does look like they have widened. And so what that tells us is that factories are continuing to shed workers as they try to deal with these rising costs and there's also some strains continuing uh, on the logistics side of things as well. Services sector of course not good for things like transport, accommodation, uh, catering etc. Of course that looks at the bigger and state owned firms. We'll get an idea of how these smaller and private firms are certainly holding up um, tomorrow when it get the Taishin manufacturing PMI uh, but I mean it does seem like the markets have largely priced a lot of this disappointing data in and of course uh, this is largely building the case you could perhaps say uh, for more stimulus but also maybe a sooner end to zero COVID and to answer your question on that we had that press conference of course yesterday and what the messaging seemed to be from the authorities was largely a reiteration of these targeted more precise measures of course not any sort of big bang reopening because what they really want to do now is focus on vaccinating the elderly population the most vulnerable part of the population of course and that is significant because really that is seen a higher vaccination rate of the elderly as essential to China's reopening. But of course, in the meantime, we continue to see uh, these flare-ups in terms of these protests. Uh, we are now hearing reports and a lot of videos doing the rounds online on Twitter, I should point out. This has been heavily censored over in China uh, on Weibo of people seemingly clashing with uh, law enforcement over in Guangzhou. And we've got to understand that, of course, uh, Guangzhou, guys, is made up of a lot of migrant workers, people who have over the decades come to the big smoke from the villages to make some money. Uh, and of course, we know that the zero COVID strategy is very much hurting those migrant workers and those people that run a lot of those small to medium sized enterprises. So this is just another example of the growing frustration that we are seeing in China, fed up with the uh, draconian and also arbitrary nature of these measures. Back to you. Thank you for that. Um, former PBOC advisor and Mansfield Freeman professor of economics at Tsinghua University, Li Dao Kuei, spoke uh, to our colleagues in Asia this morning and outlined the reopening options facing the Chinese authorities. There are many ways. Let's start with the first one. First one is to relax uh, the traveling restrictions for Chinese citizens and foreigners to go in and go out of Chinese uh, border. So that's number one. The border control should well be greatly relaxed. Number two is to uh, let people to stay home instead of uh, transporting to a summer hospital facility once they're diagnosed with uh, the COVID. Number three is to uh, relax the restriction of people who are in close contact with uh, people who are diagnosed with COVID. And uh, also number four, uh, is to require people to stay home rather than to go to the hospital when they are diagnosed. Um, that is to save medical uh, resources for the most urgent and the mo uh, and se severely ill people. So there are many, there's, there's continuum uh, spectrum of policy options.
Lidal Khoi with us uh, from Tsinghua University there. Let's get to Dan Kemp. Dan is uh, CIO at Morningstar. Dan, good morning to you. As I look at your notes this morning, you talk up your contrarian mindset. What is your contrarian mindset telling you right now about whether you should invest in China? Well, good morning, Jeff. I think the first thing to say about being a contrarian, of course, is you have to be pretty humble as a contrarian. You're often shown to be foolish if you're too aggressive. But nevertheless, the heart of being able to think independently is to look through the noise that surrounds us, the narratives that surround us, and think a little bit long term. And as we as we do that, actually, we see some really good opportunities in China from a valuation perspective. There are some wonderful uh, companies in, in China. Uh, particularly in the technology and communications space. Uh, they didn't benefit in the same way as the US tech stocks did over the last couple of years. And so now they're really good quality growth companies at very low valuation. So actually, uh, we're excited about the opportunities in China for the first time in a, in a very long time. So at these levels, and I ask you that question, uh, people may look at the news around China and think it's a disaster in market terms. But the reality is the MSCI China is up over 26 percent month to date here. So there is money chasing the Chinese story. Um, that's a long way already in a month. Do you put more money in at this point or do you wait for a valuation reset? Well, it's it's a long way in a month. Uh, it's still quite a way off the high. Of course, when you have very large moves, as you know, percentages become a bit misleading. Uh, and so it's still a, a long way from where valuations were. We'd still see these uh, these stocks, that market as underpriced. And so uh, and so we're we're not adding to positions. We've already got positions in in the market. I think the the most important thing to remember is that when investing in China, although we can't predict the politics. We know that uh, it's a it's an environment where things can change, where the government uh, has control, and so there has to be an expectation of a uh, of a very low outcome from these stocks as well. So the the capital amount that you put to work in China is incredibly important. So you can't be too uh, bullish, you can't be too enthusiastic. Uh, but at these valuation levels, still well off the highs, they still looks like good value to us. Why would I bother, Dan? Good morning to you. Why would I bother when there are so many other extraordinary opportunities around to add on the extra layer of political risk uh, and regulatory change because of the politicians? You've got polit political risk domestically in what uh, the government under Xi decides to do, plus trans-Pacific policy risk as well. Why would you even bother with China when there's so many opportunities globally? Steve, that's a, a really good point. I'm just going to challenge the premise of the question, though, that actually, as we look across the world, we don't see an enormous number of opportunities. Prices are lower than they were at the beginning of the year, of course, and we see that particularly in the US. But at the beginning of the year, we saw the US as being extremely overvalued. And so as prices have come back, uh, we think US equities have got nearer to, to fair value. Uh, Europe still doesn't look particularly attractive outside uh, Germany. And so there are still pockets of valuation, uh, but it's it's not that situation that we've seen in previous big market moves where we think that the whole world is on sale and there's a wealth of opportunities. Uh, we'd still see a fairly narrow opportunity set in this market. I mean, even look close to home, Dan, on your home turf. Threadneedle Street, or well, not Threadneedle Street, where the old stock market was, well, stock market these days. It's Paternoster Square these days, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. I mean, look, we're trading 11 times on the FTSE as well. Surely stuff like that looks cheap. 
Well, the UK is the is the exception alongside Germany. You, you're right. So uh, the, the the UK uh, is a is an attractively priced uh, market, even though it's been one of the most resilient this year. But the thing to remember about the UK is the underlying market shape uh, really is dominated by uh, energy and financial companies and healthcare companies. And as, as you know, uh, you haven't got that long term growth exposure in the UK that you can have elsewhere. And so, so one of the attractions about China's, you have these high quality, large technology stocks at very low valuation. So it's not just about the geography, it's about the, uh, the sector and the industry makeup as well. And we've got to say goodbye to you, but thanks for getting up for us this morning. Dan Kemp, the CIO of Morningstar. Apple supplier Foxconn is offering big bonuses to entice workers back to its uh, Zhengzhou factory after recent labor unrest. Uh, CNBC.com has that story. Go and have a look. Right, uh, am I at the wall or should I stay here? I'll stay here. They've put the, uh, the, the, the oil price at the wall. Look, um, this is the best they can throw at it, yeah, at the moment. I think this is fascinating. OPEC and its allies, OPEC Plus, will meet on Sunday. Expectations that the oil producer group will pursue deeper supply cuts. And look, there's all that news about supply cuts in the price, uh, and we're still only 83.90. Uh, are they getting worried, Dan? Um, why have they changed it at the last moment? I understand that a, a cacophony uh, of CNBC reporters globally were going to convene on Vienna from the Middle East and from the United States, and now that probably won't be happening because they've gone virtually. Are they afraid of media inquisitions? Well, they might be, Steve. Cancel your Christmas market shopping tour. Cancel your Christmas shopping events in Vienna because OPEC is now going to be meeting virtually. And look, there's a lot to be read into this decision, but analysts over at RBC, to begin some of the reaction and analysis, analysts over at RBC led by Halima Croft have said that this could ultimately mean that we will see a rollover becoming more likely as OPEC looks to avoid some of the scrutiny around the subsequent decision that comes up with regards to the EU sanctions on Russian seaborne crude oil and also that uncertainty over the EU price cap. At the same time, I've been looking over some analysis from Standard Chartered. They've also said that as the data stands, the case for another significant cut similar to October is weak and the case for rolling over current targets appears stronger. Look, here's the thing, though. There is some appeal to adjust targets. The reality is prices are lower than what they were eight weeks ago. And the general trend that we've seen through November is for prices to be declining. So OPEC's decision to cut output in a way, I think it's fair to say, has been vindicated. And those who said that OPEC plus decision to cut output was political rather than fundamental appear to have been proven wrong. There's also some corners of this market now, Steve that are suggesting that OPEC will actually need to cut further given some of the uncertainties that continue to play out in the market. Here's another view on Capital Connection only a short time ago. I spoke with Carol Narkley at Narkley Energy and she has suggested that we could also see a rollover taking place here. That's despite a lot of the uncertainty that still faces this market. Listen in. We are seeing oil prices at the same level as just a few days in September before the OPEC plus meeting uh, where they announced a 2 million barrels a day cut. So we are this in the same territory, but we are heading into very interesting territories, which is, first of all, the EU sanctions on Russian oil on seaborne oil traded from Russia are going to become effective. And also we're going to see what will happen with the EU price cap. I think there's two other points to make here. Um, the first is that there are too many uncertainties, starting with that EU 
oil price cap, as I mentioned. European ministers can't agree on a price that both punishes Russia while also secures energy security and supply and reports that that price cap negotiation has been reduced down to $62 a barrel also seems unpalatable for some ministers. And then also, guys, there is the China factor as well. We've seen protests this week continuing to play out. Um, perhaps a policy pivot taking place in China that could lay the groundwork for an earlier reopening of that major oil consumer also weighing on the minds of these OPEC ministers. So look, the meeting will still take place. It's just going to happen virtually. No meeting in December physically in Vienna, perhaps much to the disappointment of a lot of the OPEC journalists out there, guys. It's back over to you. Terrific. Dan, thank you very much indeed for that. And that, uh, this is, I mean, it just reminds me of the perversity of the market narrative that you get at the moment. So we kicked off the program. You remember the top headline um, that Chinese in industrial data was weaker, right? Sub 50 that we looked at here. And yet, if you read any of the headlines in the press, or the financial press over the last 48 hours, it would have been oil spikes on reopening in China hopes. What reopening in China hopes? What improvement in industrial output? The data was weaker from China, not stronger. Absolutely. And yet we got a bounce on the oil price. What, what is that if about? If things were so great in China, they wouldn't be looking at more um, PBOC stimulation for the housing market. If things were so great, we wouldn't be looking at a 12.4% decline in the price of Brent over the last month as well. Mm -hmm. No, I think there's a lot of people who have got it very wrong. Mm -hmm. Look, I had a great conversation with Jeff Curry yesterday as well. This is a man who, yep. in the middle of the year, and he, I think he's a, you know, he knows his stuff on oil mm -hmm. better than 99% of, of us in the market. He thought it was 140 bucks. Then he went down. Then he went down again. So I think they, there's a lot of people who think, yeah, there's going to be problems ahead with product, refined products and certain parts of the market in 2023. But at the moment, a lot of people have got egg on their face about their overly bullish estimates of where the price is going. And who'd have thought that OPEC would be scrambling around trying to cut barrels at this stage of the year with a war raging in Europe as well? No one. None of them. And I think that's the problem. Who's the marginal buyer now in, the, as, in terms of speculators? So I think a lot of people, including OPEC, I know OPEC are making their money. They're, they're, they're selling vast amounts of oil at a historically okay price. I wouldn't say it's a historically extreme price. I mean, you and I have seen 110 yeah. to 114 barrels on average between 2011 and 2014 or whatever it was as well. Yeah. So it takes a long while to, to go down oil. But I think they must be worried about who the marginal buyer is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I guess that's why we've only seen a, what, six tenths, seven tenths of a percent rally on WTI here in the face of the threat of an OPEC cut to supply. It's not much of a bump, is it, really? No. And, and, and what's gasoline now? I mean, let's have a look in the States, which is, again, you know, I was looking at some of the estimates, huge indications that gasoline was going to be staying at five bucks for absolutely ages as well. Here we go. We've got it on the screen as well. No, no, that's not gasoline. That's uh, our boss. Um, no, three dollars fifty-two is the AAA national average for gas. I was talking to the director. Yeah, yeah I know. The bit, the bit the audience can't hear is the bit that's going on in <laughs> your head with the I'm director, like, isn't it? No, exactly. A, a, a national yeah. average gallon of gasoline has fallen to three and a half bucks. Now, don't get me wrong. That is still significantly higher than the national average uh, a year ago, but it's still a uh, dollar fifty lower than the national average on June fourteenth. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's squeeze in a break. We'll be back. And just, let me just flag up. While we're on energy, uh, we're going to catch up with uh, Juliana, who is um, looking at a gas field in the Netherlands. Uh, it's a very interesting story, and we'll catch up on that a little bit later on. Meantime, Fed Chair Jerome Powell is due to speak later today. This is a much 
watched event, S, um, investors will clearly be looking for any clues as to what it means for interest rates and inflation. I, I, I would beg to say that they're not going to get what they want out of it. But there you go. Uh, for more on the latest data coming out of China, as well as expectations for the upcoming OPEC meeting, now virtual this weekend, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. U.S. consumer confidence dipped to a four-month low this month as households watched their pennies or their cents and dollars even amid surging inflation and increased borrowing costs. The conference board's index fell to a better than expected 100.2 from 102.2 last month. The biggest declines came among the over 55s and households with incomes under $50,000. Despite that, consumers remained upbeat on the labour market with the so-called labour market differential rising on the month um, and we'll get more on those key readings today. ADP uh, employment numbers are due alongside the JOLT survey with job openings expected to have remained elevated in October. We've also got the Beige Book and Fed Chair Jerome Powell is due to speak later. Uh, Thursday brings initial jobless claims figures and the Fed's preferred PCE inflation reading and on Friday we get the monthly non-farm payrolls report so that's a lot of data. You can say a penny in the States. I know, but I was going metric, um, <laughs> moving us away from the imperial system. You can say penny in the States, you of course. You can say penny. It's yeah. a cent, isn't it? It is a cent, I believe. Yeah, I believe, yeah. 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 Um, so, look, let's go back to my sarcasm before the break about Powell's speech. Right. It's at the Brookings Institute, mm -hmm. institution. It's mm -hmm. going to be very interesting in many ways. But what, are people, what on earth are people mm -hmm. expecting? And this is my problem with the, like, the expectations for something. We all know what he's going to say. We all know what every other Fed speaker, from Bostic to Mester to whoever it may well be, the only one who's been the outlier so far was Jay uh, Bullard when he said, oh, we might go to 7% kind of thing. So let's recap what I'm saying here. Basically, he's going to say, look, we have seen the first signs of inflation abating somewhat, but we still need to be on our guard and we still see uh, interest rates higher and perhaps, um, but we will potentially be looking at a pace which is slower than the pace of the last four rate hikes, which have been 75 basis points. OK, that's my interpretation. But what else are people on earth expecting from the Powell speech today? Well, <coughs> excuse me, things, things are changing obviously as well in China. So I do wonder whether he will feel uh, it appropriate to address the question of continued supply chain challenges from <coughs> China on these uh, protests and on um, ongoing regional lockdowns. Because I think um, in, in a lot of, when we were having a conversation like this six months ago, in a lot of analyst forecasts, there was the idea that supply chain related inflation would be washed out of the system, ultimately as China found a route through zero COVID. 
Well, what we've seen is that China's effectively just continued to double down on the lockdown approach at a regional level. And it's obviously had a big impact on supply chains, specifically for a company like Apple. And you could argue that maybe a lot of people are not pricing in what that impact of um, supply chain challenges is going to be around the iPhone 14 this Christmas and um, what other um, reaction to the protests we might see from the Chinese administration. So, uh, so what I'm saying is, will he address the current or will he stick to the narrative that you've defined, which I don't disagree with you on. I mean, it, it, it is clear at the moment that that seems to have been, from the last set of minutes, the adjusted market view of where we're going on the pace of hikes. Um, in terms of the China story, again, uh, yeah. there's two very different schools of thought. And again, I always value your insight on this one as well. There are a vast number of people who say, well, they're going to listen to what the Chinese people are saying. They're going to look at these protests and they're going to head them off by having uh, perhaps a subtle reopening and perhaps a subtle policy of beginning to learn to live with COVID. Yeah. Or there is the very important concept of face in China as well, where we cannot back down because this is our policy. This is our dear leader's policy as well, President Xi, and we're going to stick to it because otherwise that would be tantamount to a loss of face as well. And there is no way there is going to be any uh, lessening of the strict COVID response in China as well. And, and I don't see how the two can meet. You either carry on as the, the current policy, which quite frankly looks ruinous for the Chinese economy on a longer term basis, yeah. or you see some form of loss of face. And I don't know how we get through this. Uh, I don't know whether there will be a pivot because, as you point out, there is the face issue here. But I'm just I'm just trying to connect a few things. I mean, the uh, apart from the China uh, zero COVID position per se. We have an administration in the United States that is very focused on reshoring or friendshoring. So production comes back to the US or it goes to Mexico. We've got um, now uh, restrictions on uh, the flow of chip technology. I think just a couple of days ago, we also got some fresh news on the way uh, the United States is, is going to treat Chinese telecom companies and telecom equipment. In the United Kingdom, we just had Rishi Sunak stand up and say, end of the golden era, end of the golden era with the Chinese. And, and the cynic in me looks at the rising um, funding costs of sovereign paper in the Western world and says, is it really in, these, in the interests of these governments to completely squash inflation at this stage? Doesn't inflation do a decent job of eroding some of the debt servicing costs that Western governments are now struggling with? And I know that's probably, you know, that's a way out there conspiracy theory. Not really. But it's one of the accepted ways of, of lessening your debt bill over right. a period of time is by inflating your way out of it. But, 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 but stars seem to be align, aligning around some interests here. You know, we can we can uh, wean ourselves off dependence on China. We can bring some of the money that would have been invested in China back home and invest it in domestic industries at a cost. Uh, and we can um, uh, we can uh, do that in um, renewable and transition technologies, which should be a net plus. And if we just have a little bit of inflation that hangs around for a bit too long, say 5 6% for a while, that'll perhaps ease some of the costs of uh, servicing uh, our paper. And, and we'll get a correction in the overvalued asset prices, and we get a chance to shrink the size of the financial economy, which grew enormously, um, and many would argue pointlessly, after 2008. Yeah, I think you're almost on 
Bilderberg co conspiracy Maybe. coordination yeah. territory because I don't think they think that far ahead. I don't think our political class is, is smart enough to think in some of those terms and those bigger picture issues that you spoke right. of. Maybe at the periphery as well. But I mean, the other thing about reshoring, and again, this mm. this is about our decades-long debate about globalization going back to, mm. I don't know, uh, what was it called? Um, globalization and its discontents mm. by um, Nobel Prize winner Joseph Stiglitz, yes. which we both read around the year 2000. Yeah. I think that's pretty much when it came out as well. Yeah. And it's the same debate. What does globalization do for you? What does deglobalization do for you as well? Well, mm. it certainly creates inflation domestically as well and a higher yeah. cost base. So that would keep inflation on the, on the, on the right. boil as well, wouldn't it? Yes. So, so there isn't Replace somebody... Replace cheap telecoms from China with expensive telecoms from home. There isn't someone in Silicon Valley with a, a white cat that they're stroking while they work out how to... No, that's to, my white cat. Uh, okay. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.